Good morning. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with, if you've uh, seen Lutheran Public Radio, but um, it's basically music 24 hours a day, um, sacred music. You can get to it on the website here where I am here, LutheranPublicRadio.org. I'm sorry, it's up. It's right up here. Sorry, you can't see it. LutheranPublicRadio.org. Um, but they also have apps uh, for phones and stuff. Um, and it follows the church here, so it they won't have like Easter music playing right now. They'll wait until Easter on here. Uh, can be useful. Uh, I think on the on the app you don't see what's playing, but on the website at least you can see what's playing if you I don't know want to know what the song was or the hymn was. It's mostly hymns, choral music, um, sometimes some other like organ music and such. Um, that it's, it's, it's from Lutheran Public Radio is the same group that publishes, does like issues, etc. So that's too, but it's, um, the music comes from all over the place, you know, so it's some of, they get recordings from all over, from, you know, I, I hear occasionally some of like our, our school's choir recordings occasionally, so... But it's and it's it's straight music. There's no. They have a like a version on the on the, like when you download the app. There's Lutheran uh, music and then there's talk and the talk section has like issues etc. And I'm not sure what else they have on there. But um, we are getting towards the towards the end of First Peter. We're going to start chapter four today, and. Uh, uh, to support chapters four and five that are left, so we're coming coming near the end. We are going to try to get to one through eleven, but first um, we're going to just look at verses one through six. So that's what we'll read first. We'll read one through six, and hopefully we get to the other other verses too. Okay, so we're going to read First Peter chapter four, starting to verse one. Shall we? Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Okay. You know, I, we, I mentioned last week when we had that, that verse on the descent into hell, and uh, was it Luther's comment or someone else commented, like, this is a really hard verse. When I got into this section, I thought, these are some really hard verses too, um, at least initially, but, but I hope we can, we can, I think we can sort them out um, and find that it's actually very, 
Very wonderful what he writes here. Okay? So, he starts off, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, which should remind us of what came earlier in chapter 3, 3 verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins. Um, so he's, that, that kind of connects it to the previous section. He had talked about Christ suffering for sins. Um, uh, and that's when he went and then, then uh, his uh, descended to hell and all of that. So kind of returning to that. But then you also have um, this term in the flesh, which it comes up. He suffered in the flesh, suffered in the flesh, now here in the flesh. And we had come across that in the previous section where he talked about he was put to death in the flesh and read alive in the spirit. And we said that that's likely the, the put to death in the flesh refers to his humanity and put alive in the spirit, his exalted divinity, um, his made alive in the spirit. Uh, so we're, we're figuring out when, when we see this word flesh, what exactly is it referring to? Because sometimes the scripture does use this that term to refer to the, the sinful flesh. If Christ suffered it, well, that's not going to fit Jesus, right? Um, it could simply be talking about meat. That's what the term literally means. It's, it's, it's the word for meat. It's flesh, right? Um, but just like the, that verse before, I think it, when we say in this sort of humanity in his flesh, his human flesh, like when in 1 John, the word became flesh. Um, means that's the incarnation, in which it, in incarnation, carne means meat too, right? That's the flesh word. But what is, what is incarnation doesn't just give him just a body. When Jesus, when, when Jesus takes on human flesh, he takes on a full humanity. It's not just his meat, okay? Right? It's not just the body kind of uh, narrowly. It is his whole humanity. And so here, too, how does Jesus suffer? He doesn't just suffer in his meat. His whole being is suffering. So the question, then, how, how does the suffering in the flesh affect living in human passions? So the, since Christ suffered in the flesh, um, he says, Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So he makes this application of the one who suffers... Um, in, his, in, his, in his human being, uh, ceases from sin. Uh, before we get to that connection, what is he telling him to do? Uh, he says, arm yourselves with that same way of thinking. And it doesn't like spell it out exactly how, what's this connection. He says, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourself in the same way of thinking. What way of thinking? And I, it seems to, the same way of thinking is the same way of thinking that Christ that Christ is in suffering in the flesh. Um, so we would talk about a, a disposition towards suffering. How does Jesus go into suffering? And Lent is a good time for this, right? How does Jesus approach his suffering? Uh, we sing it. A lamb goes uncomplaining forth. Right? He doesn't go um, kicking and screaming to the cross. He goes towards his suffering Willingly, intentionally, even determined, determinedly, <laughs> um, he, he's, he's set on this. Uh, and even wants to. Willing all this, I suffer, we say. 
right? Um, and so, arm yourselves with that same mindset, that same disposition towards willing, uh, willing suffering, because just like we had before in the book, um, he had said, remember, um, Christ suffered, um, setting an example for us. Um, Luther, in this section, he, he makes this point, and it's really useful for us to remember. When we talk about Christ and his suffering in particular, but in general, first of all, Christ's life for us is as a gift. His merit, his righteousness, and his, his suffering, right? It is given to us as a gift for the forgiveness of our sins. It is in our place as his substitute. But Christ's life, um, his suffering, is also an example. And so he had done that earlier in the, in the book. He had said, Christ suffered, setting an example for you, right? He did not revile, he did not retaliate, right? That was an example. And he kind of is doing the same thing here. He said, okay, Christ did this. Arm yourselves with this, they're thinking. And that this, doing this, is this. And I think it's an interesting um, word choice. This is like an armor. This is going to be a protection. Um, having this disposition, like Christ, to willingly suffer um, is, going to, is, is going to do something for you. It's going to protect you in some ways. And so then when he goes on, whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Um, so what, is, what does, how does suffering in the flesh affect human living in human passions and sins. And that's helpful for because then he's going to go on and talk about these human passions. Right? Um, no longer, not, instead, the opposite of this, the opposite of this would be to live in human passions. So um, the one who suffers from sin is ceased from sin. What does that sin look like? It looks like all this other stuff. Um, so, so, Pastor, the suffering for Christ is just well, I think we could we could list Jesus' suffering uh, wider than just on the cross. Its its main point is on the cross, and that's the the heaviest heat. But I, I don't think we would exclude any other part the other parts of his life where he's you know where he's um, rejected or he's you know all the way from when he's a baby and they try to kill him yeah. then too you know so. But but culminates on the cross, and and absolutely that's going to be the pinnacle of it. Um, and ours does. We're we're. I mean, we could have a crucifixion moment. We could have a most severe moment in our life that is suffering. But likewise, it, it extends. And so the suffering in the flesh is not just dying, right? Um, and, and so he, he makes this claim. Whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. What does suffering do? Does it, does it get rid of sin? Does it keep those things? Um, maybe let's look at a couple of other verses about suffering, and maybe they'll, they'll shed some light on this. So, of things that suffering do. We had one already here in this, in this letter, earlier in chapter 1. Peter had said, Harold, let me make this bigger for you. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That the testing of your faith is a testing, right? And it, and it shows something to be true and genuine, and this results in praise and glory to God. Okay, 
Um, but also Romans 5. Paul writes about, we, not, we rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance. And that endurance produces character and character hope, right? Um, that suffering accomplishes something. We would not call suffering like a means of grace. It doesn't save us. Jesus' suffering does, right? Although maybe that's the connection, is that Jesus' suffering saves when I am like-minded. Not that I'm saved by making myself like Jesus. Jesus saves me again as a gift. But as I follow in that way, it does something. Suffering produces endurance. How else do you get endurance? I've been working on, on doing, uh, actually doing push-ups. And like, it, the, only, the only way to be able to do more of an ex any exercise is by doing more. <laughs> and to push hard, right? I mean, I mean that's where the, you know, no pain, no gain kind of company. I mean, there is a, there's a truth to that in that pushing hard is the only, and how do you build endurance? How, how can you, uh, you get to be able to run any length of distance? You have to run distance. Like, there's no other way to do that. There's no other way to be able to endure other than to having the, the pressure of, of enduring. Um, in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes, we do not lose heart. Um, he describes this, this suffering. We don't lose heart, though. Our outer self is wasting away on the outside, but our inner self is being renewed day by day through the suffering. It is renewing. Um, and then in Hebrews 12, it talks about discipline, hard things, right? All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Um, so how does, how does suffering in the flesh affect living in human passions and desires? Um, Having the, the suffering has a way of, of um, I don't know, like cutting us off from like so. In, in some in some ways, in some ways, it seems like sort of a natural thing. Like it's almost a distraction. If you're suffering under the cross, and, and what does that focus you on? Um, like you don't maybe. It, directs you away from things that, you know, the, see, just see, pleasure-seeking. Uh, Luther has a comment here. Okay, you won't let me see it. Um, it's at the bottom of the page. Uh, a cross, a cross to this extent, cross is good to this extent because it helps, every, helps to suppress sin. Therefore, when the cross addresses you, forget all about inordinate desires, envy, and hatred, and other perversities. God lays a cross upon us in order to compel us to believe and to lend a hand, lend a helping hand. Uh, that, that the cross can suppress it, like in some ways it's like it takes my eyes off of my own desires. Or another way, I mean, it's kind of like, again, sort of on the surface level, I don't have time for it. <laughs> I don't have time to play. When when I'm suffering. And it, and it also, though, it does align me when, if I understand it as Christian suffering and I see that it's drawing me to look more and more like my Jesus, I guess I'm inclined to think more and more about my Jesus than about the, the pleasures of my flesh. Yeah? 
I often, it's interesting, you know, if you have a, like a, a good crucifix that is very kind of, um, you know, and there's, there's all types, there's all types of, you know, what, what they shape the body of Jesus to look like. But it's usually, and you know, like you can count, he can, you can count all my bones, or they can count all my bones from the from the psalm, and so they usually depict. You can see his rib cage usually; it's kind of gaunt, you know, looking. Um, it's not always, especially when it's in metal, you can't see a lot of detail. But you, um, I don't know if you ever you've you've seen people look a little bit like that. Usually, they're not stretched out on the cross. Usually, they're in a hospital bed or a hospice bed or something like that, and they start to waste away. And there's a there's a part of us that begins to look, and and that's just that's just an appearance. But in suffering, um, we are conformed to the image of His Son, and and that we would in suffering be shaped by it to look more like Jesus, not just physically, but just that the, the suffering shapes us to look more like him. And that, I think, then turns us in our affections and our heart, our faith, to him. Um, but as well as it distracts us from all the other, other stuff. All right. Um, so, and that's kind of what he, then the next part, he says, okay, so, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh. So the rest of the time, the rest of our life, what, what, because he's going to talk before about the time past. So live for the rest of our lives in the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Because the time that's past suffices for what the Gentiles want to do. There's this way of living that the Gentiles are accustomed to. Um, and Gentiles, uh, I think the MAV had pagans here. Um, the way the pagans choose to live. Uh, unbelievers. So we're not just talking about non-Jews um, but you're talking, it's referring to those outside the Gentiles, the unbelievers. Um, but not just what they currently do, because when he says the time that has passed, probably dealing with Christians who weren't always Christians. Right? And that's why the NIV actually says, You have spent enough time in the past doing, you have spent enough time, you've had enough of that. You have enough of that, and that's in your past. For the rest of the time, now, now here comes suffering with Christ. Now we can live in a different way, not, for, not just for human passions, but for the will of God. There's been enough of that. You've, you've, you've had your fill. <laughs> right? Doing what the Gentiles do. The question, I put the question on the sheet. Is this, that what the Gentiles always do? Or all of the Gentiles? Do all pagans, Gentiles unbelief, live this way, live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, Lawless idolatry, debauchery talks about. Do all Gentiles live that way? I would say not. Not all, outwardly. Maybe in the mind, but not in reality. Yeah, yeah, not everyone. So, like, not that would be a, a mischaracterization if we were to say everyone who is an unbeliever is the, is the worst kind of sinner, or to say that um, Christians look a whole lot better, necessarily, all the time. Um, we are sinful, too. Right? At the same time, I think when he talks about living in sensuality, it's, it's the... Um, 
living apart from the will of God, and the opposite of the will of God are all of these things. And the one who lives apart from the will of God, apart from faith in him, lives, they think, free to live however they want. They might not want to live in orgies. You know, they might want to be married to one person for the rest of their life. There's some earthly benefit for that, and they can have a wildly successful and fruitful and productive but unbelieving life. They could look like really good people. Um, so we don't want to think that, but at the same time, unbelief is unbelief, and unbelief is driven by not the will of God, but by, they may have other desires that aren't against the law or aren't gross, or aren't, you know, but they, they, that would still be sinful, and unbelieving would still... It would fit. You daily sin much. It might be just in your mind. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, so this... Not the actual doing of it. Right, yeah, yeah, and that's, that's sin too, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, the things that he lists here are the... The bad stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, it was going on when he was preaching. Yeah, and, and I think he knew his audience well enough that this was a common thing among the Gentiles. This was, uh, he, he, he gives us what Gentiles want to do, with what they typically do, the lifestyle. And we know, we know that there are people, well, we may not in every single one, you know, you've got people that do all this stuff. There are people. Right? They live a... Most probably don't. They have their vices. They certainly have all kinds of sins. Right? And, but here to the Christians, who used to live as pagans, who used to live as Gentiles, however that looked, maybe it looked really bad, maybe it looked... They were pretty pious. I mean, they were good neighbors and all that. They might have been. But they were still Gentiles then. Um, he says, well, you've, you've had time for that for living for the, the, the passions of, the, of, of human, human passions. Um, so now, now, now you have something different. Now we're going to be living, he says, arm yourselves. How do you arm yourselves against this stuff? Not just this stuff, but also the sins of the mind, all of the sin, right? You arm yourselves with the mind of Christ. Why are pagans so surprised by Christian behavior? And you'll we'll find this too. I think you will. It says they, they, with their respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they belign you. Why are pagans surprised by Christian behavior? Because they enjoy it. Because they what? They enjoy it. <laughs> and, and they're and like, why don't? Possibly they don't know any different. Yeah. They say, why not do it? Because you can go and ask for forgiveness after you're done. Well, yeah, the pagans probably don't really care much about forgiveness. They would like, why not? Like, what possible scruple, you know, why? Um, and they're surprised. Like, you're weird. Or dumb. Or, you know, why would you live such a way? Why don't you just... Loosen up, whatever it is. Um, and, and there's all kinds of, you wouldn't have to be necessarily about these, these kind of wicked things. Um, but when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery, whatever it is, 
Like whether it's the kind of the, the extreme things, well, yes, I'm not gonna go to the orgy and join you in your whatever gross thing you're doing. Um, but it could also, you know, I, I think we'd also wanna, there could be many other smaller things that would, no, I'm just, you know, uh, for, you know, just let's say for example, the, the type of language that a person uses. I, 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 don't, I don't speak that way. You know, like, why don't you ever, why don't you ever let your hair down? Why don't you call, relax? Don't be such a, whatever name they call you. Um, right? Uh, and they malign, what would be the purpose of maligning someone for being, for, for not joining them in bad behavior? What's the point? Make them feel better. Make themselves feel better. I think, I think that's a large part of it. Yeah. Because it doesn't really help them, you know. But but there's there's an evidence of some kind of pricking of a conscience of some sort, and you people get they get like defensive when and you don't even have to like say anything to them about like what they're doing, but just putting forward a a positive. I mean, I've seen that where someone just all they do is express their. You know, like something bad happens and the Christian just expresses their trust in, in God to take care of them. And they're just, they react to that because they feel, wow, you can't always just do that. You gotta, you know, like, um, they malign you. Um, and I think the other thing is when you say that they are surprised because they don't understand where it comes from. Where does it come from that you would... You would not join people in, in, in sinful behavior. Um, what's driving that in you? Oh, it's the love of Christ it's that he has, has for you and that you know, God's a new life of faith. They don't have that. If someone doesn't have it, they're not going to know. The thing that drives you, that impels you to, to be who you are, an unbeliever doesn't have. And so like, where does that come from? They might just assume, well, you just this is just the way you were raised, and, and we might even say that, like, well, I wasn't raised to use that kind of language. Um, but there's more to it than that, right? It's not just because I'm not accustomed to it. The reason I'm not accustomed to it is because it's wrong, because you know, I, because I, yeah. um, but they would not understand the basis, the reason for the things that you do, um, if they don't have that. So, all right. Somewhat depend on the family you grew up in. What your parents did. Oh, it, it for sure does. Yeah, we are we are set in behaviors and patterns that that we see growing up. Yep. Um, okay, then. <laughs> okay, so they they may do that, but but they will give a they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Um, so. So they can do that, but they're going to have to answer for that. Why does he remind them of that? Why are Christians reminded that their slanders must answer to the judge? They're not immune to it. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so, so what's that going to do for the Christian? It should just kind of uh, console them somewhat. Yeah. To console them, I think, is, is a good way to put it. Um, to calm you, like because what you, what, how do you feel when you get maligned? Not good, right? Even though you, if you know that you're right, 
doesn't feel good, right? Um, and I, I don't know, maybe it, it could be a temptation to doubt or something, um, just to... Who's going to take care of it? Some instances, it may make the individual extremely mad, you might say, that they start pushing back. Yeah, and it could tempt them to react poorly. Right. Yeah. Uh, but to, to hear, look, I don't have to be their judge now. Right? That's another thing, too. If someone's, if they're going to have to answer, ready, uh, they'll give account to him who's ready to judge the living the dead. That doesn't have to be you. And you don't have to fix them. You don't have to, I mean, there, there's probably appropriate times for you to, to say something to someone. Um, but in the end, they're going to answer. Um, it's so someone much bigger than you. Uh, they may not, may, may not care what you have to say. But um, so to console, to calm and comfort them, um, to make them, uh, I don't know if this is Luther, or, make them determine patiently to bear abuse and blasphemy and to place their affairs into the hands of him who judges justly. The living and the, the and the dead, um, which is kind of we have that we have the, it comes to judge the living and the dead in the creed, right? The living and the dead, um, or the quick and the dead, the old old version said the, um, which is kind of a reminder already here. Just you know, the one who will judge the living and the dead one day, both you and the person who is maligning you or causing you you suffering, you'll both be dead. <laughs> Um, and there's one who is the judge over, doesn't, doesn't matter, um, kind of gives you a, a big picture perspective on this. This is how it feels right now, but step back, see how this is going to go. Um, he's going to judge the living and the dead. And that's what's going to connect you. Notice here that this whole section is in the, in the theme of the whole book. It's, it's to Christians who are going to face suffering and, and, and likely already are um, to comfort them. And then he goes on. He says, this is why the gospel is preached, even to those who are dead. So he had mentioned the dead here. The gospel is preached even to the, those who are dead and that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. What is this talking about? Um, what is this um, the, the gospel was preached to the dead. Um, so I put on their sheet there three um, like potential options. These are things that, that some, there's lots of different, one of the things that's been, like this verse, like there's like 40 different options of di things that different exegetes, scholars throughout the centuries have, have said you know, the, the meaning of this. Here's three. Uh, First, that, that some people didn't hear the gospel while they were alive, so it was preached to them after they died. Um, this line would be, remember the verse that we had previously in chapter 3 on the descent into hell? Uh, he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Um, and, and those who would say, remember one of the things that, one of the, not options, but things that people will say about that verse is that Jesus goes and he preaches and kind of preaches salvation to people who didn't accept him first while they were alive, but now they're in prison, now they're in, in dead or in hell, and he's going to go after his resurrection, or after his death and resurrection, he's going to go preach to them again. 
And we ruled that out. We said, well, no, that would contradict the rest of Scripture. Man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So there's not this second chance for them to hear the gospel again. But those who think that that is what that other verse means, they probably would think that that's what this one also means. That, you know, that um, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That um, after they died, then they got the gospel preached to them. And they had sort of a second chance. I think we could rule that one out because of it. All right? B, before the gospel enlivened us with saving faith in our hearts, we were spiritually dead in our sins. Well, so this takes this um, sort of metaphorically, and that the gospel preached to those who are dead, that those who are dead spiritually, which the Bible does talk about, all of us dead in trespasses and sins. And so here the idea they, that the gospel was preached to those who are dead in trespasses and sins, which could be any of us, right? And then they came to life. Um, um, that, that is a biblical use, but that's probably not in the context here. Um, this is some old, old um, Lutheran theologians kind of thought this was the way to take it, um, that those who were dead in trespasses you know, dead spiritually, and then they came to life spiritually. Um, I think probably this next phrase, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, um, just like previously, that in the flesh was in their, in their the human way, and in the body, and the, their, their actual life, um, probably rules that one out. That leaves the third one, Christians of the past heard the gospel while they were alive, now they are dead. So, that those who are dead are dead now, but they weren't always dead. And it doesn't say that the gospel was preached to them while they were dead. It's just to those who are, who are, current, who are now dead. The gospel was preached to them. Um, and now... So, like, so the, because then this connects to it. Now, those who are dead, that though they judged in the flesh the way people are, they died. Right? And human judgment says they died. That's, that's the way, that's the way, according to man, this is the way this goes. But what is true of them? Though dead, they live. So they are, have died in the flesh. But they live in the spirit the way God does. And that comes back then to Jesus died according to the flesh, raised in the spirit, um, which is kind of the way we will die too. We'll die in the flesh. But then that our, our, is our resurrection in any different really than Jesus' resurrection? As far as it's a divine work of, the, uh, of God himself. Um, the life giver. Um, so the they, this they would go back to the dead. Um, the other thing of who this is, remember when we talked about that, the, so the descent into hell verse, it says he went and preached to the spirits in prison, and I said that that was, that word doesn't mean the gospel was preached, there's a different word for that. It just means proclaimed. Here, the word, this is just one word in Greek, oiangelio, uh, it's to evangelize, um, and it means to good news. It, it means to, to proclaim good news. Um, 
the good news was proclaimed to those who are dead. Uh, so this is that other word. So to those who are in hell, they get proclaimed to them a message. And we said, what is the message they're proclaimed? Christ's victory, defeat of sin and death and the devil, right? Um, this victory parade in downtown hell kind of thing. Um, but here, to these dead, the gospel was preached to them. Not while they're dead, but while they were alive, the gospel was preached to them. And, and this, because with this word, it, it first of all has to do with the preaching of the good news. But it can also include the result of that. So we sometimes do that in, in English and, and here the, the word sometimes is used this way. If, if we use the word to say, like, um, the, the Christian church did mission work and evangelized this continent or something like that, that it doesn't just mean that they preached. Usually it has some, part of the context is that some people came to faith as a result of it. That the, this um, preaching of the gospel has an effect. And I think that that's what is in mind here, that the people who the gospel is preached to, though they are now dead, um, they also came to faith. Because not everyone did. Not everyone who hears believes. But these did. How do we know that? Because this is the gospel is preached to them. And though they were judged in the flesh the way people are, and they died, they might live in the spirit. So, so the, the world's judgment of them is that they are done. But according to the Spirit and according to God, they are not. They live. Right? And so, and how does that happen? Because the gospel is preached to them. Because they came to faith. Doesn't matter that they died. Um, for the unbeliever, for the maligners, the, the, the persecutors of the Christians who, su who make them suffer and, and, and ridicule them, and what's, je what's death going to do to them? Well, it doesn't matter. Living or dead, you're going to get judged, <laughs> right? You're going to stand before the judge, and and that judge doesn't have to be you. You don't have that's so another reason why you don't have to get them back, because someone else will take care of that for you, right? This no one's going to get off for anything. That you know, if someone does something to you, they're not going free. Okay, um, so either yeah, so either someone does something to you, either they will pay. Or Christ will pay. And their sins will be forgiven. And they come to repentance. It'll be okay either way. Um, so, death doesn't, I mean, they're just, you know, the, these maligners, the, the Christians can look at them and say, eh, someday they're going to die. Jesus, they're going to stand before the judgment of God. And so will I, but I've heard the gospel. And, and so th then also, then these Christians who, who have suffered in the past, um, but now they're dead, and someday you'll be dead too. Uh, but the gospel is preached to you, and you'll still live. So death won't death won't affect you. Um, it'll you'll you'll be okay. Yeah. So that so even this fact. Um, Death, death doesn't relieve the slanderer of facing the judgment, and death doesn't um, cause you to have to lose hope.
Make sense? Well, let's go into the next section, verses 7 through 11. Let's read that first. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift Use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. All right, uh, so first, the end of all things is at hand. The, the end is near. Um, we, we understand that this near is not, a, 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 we can't put a number or a length of time on that because you know, St. Peter's writing this almost 2,000 years ago. Um, so either, either, I mean, Jesus says the same thing. Um, and the apostles all write this way, the end is near. Uh, either they don't know what this word means, or what they mean by this word is not like a, you know. But the end is at hand. I think of a day is like a thousand years in my sight. And, and so, yep, yep. So, so if in the Lord's sight, is this near? Absolutely it is. As well as, um, the, the, the end of all things the end, so the, the New Testament's description of the end times is basically now not because we've read certain things in the newspaper and because we've determined that things are getting really bad right now and it just, Jesus just has to come back because this is really really bad and, and you know Peter's watching the news and he's looking at things and he's like things are getting really bad and Martin Luther was watching the news and he's like, things are getting really, really bad. Guess what? Because we all live in these end times. I think the best way to understand the end times in the New Testament is the time between Jesus' ascension and his return. It's while we're waiting for Jesus. Yeah? Um, will there be, or are there things that, that come and go uh, and, you know, does it sort of describe it getting worse as things get per, as things progress? Yeah, but but as you look through history, you look at well, I, I'm not sure it's really a trajectory. It's kind of you know it's it it's all kinds of different bad. <laughs> that's a that's the thing. So it is at hand, um, and and you know so going back to when will the judge appear? When will he appear to judge the living and the dead? We'll, we'll be, we'll, so, so we're going to, since that is the case, since it, it, is, it is near, um, so what does he say? He, you know, he says, um, nearness of then should prompt and necessitate Christian prayer. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Why? So that you can pray. Um, well, let's first talk about why, why would prayer be 
Um, why would that be something that we'd want to focus on if the end is, is coming? And I don't mean, you know, that it will be tomorrow or, you know, it could be a hundred years still. Um, so he doesn't say, well, don't go to quit your job, go, don't go to work, because the end is coming. Just sit at home and pray. He doesn't mean that to the exclusion of living <coughs> or planning, right? Or anything that you... But that we would pray, because that's what Christians are to do. <laughs> and I don't think this is anything new. But that certainly the opposite of these things, being self-controlled and sober-minded, which I think would be kind of what he describes in the other passage, you know, that, uh, what does he call that? A flood of, um, flood of debauchery. This kind of free, excessive living, um, do whatever you want, live it up, live, uh, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's not the conclusion that we have. If we're going to die tomorrow, what does Luther say? Luther says, if, if, I, if I knew that the world was going to end tomorrow, Jesus was going to come tomorrow, what would you do today? I think he said plant a tree. <clears throat> you, you wouldn't act as though, like, well, okay, then I, I don't have to do anything that's, that could potentially affect the future. I would carry on um, as a Christian. Um, be self-controlled, sober-minded. We've come across that a, a couple of times uh, in this book. Well, Three times. Some people, their mind gets so messed up because of the fear that they probably decide for them to work. Yeah, and they can't. They, they can't see anything else in that. Then, I mean, anyone who watches, if, if, if anyone who watches 24-hour news, any news channel that's on 24 hours a day, and I mean, you don't have to watch it for all 24 hours. They say the same thing in 10 minutes. You can you see everything that you'll see in 24 hours. Um, and, but and you've probably met some people like that. They will become like this is all they can think of, and they think that I mean, and things are bad. Don't don't deny that. But it will it will eat them up, and then they won't be able to you know. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of fretting over it really does take rob someone of the, the, the trust to be able to pray and to entrust that into the hands of the, the one who, whose hands it is in. Um, and so the, 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 uh, this sober-mindedness versus the kind of um, the idea of being you know, like drunken-minded where they're not focused, which is required for attentiveness to the word of God and prayer. Um, so don't get trapped up. Don't get sucked into all of that. Be self-controlled, sober-minded uh, for, for your prayers. And this is the same way he talks about um, husbands and wives, you know, in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, you know, sometimes a husband and wife will separate for a while for the sake of their prayers. You know, um, needing attention. And then he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. So when things are bad, when there's suffering coming and you're living in this world, so what do you do? Well, pray. Well, love. <laughs> it's just ordinary stuff. Carry on. 
doing what Christ has given you to do. Keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality. Use your gifts. Serve. I like number 10. Live. This. Everybody has it. Receive the gift, use it. Yeah, use it. As you're good stewards, you, you've been given things, you use what you've been given, yeah, of God's very grace. And so, um, this, carry on? I mean, it's, it's, this is not, you know, like something special for Christmas to do, but in the context of the whole, so you notice like you didn't hear, he's not doesn't specifically talking about suffering. He doesn't mention the suffering in this part. But it's in that context. It's like, what do you do when you're when you're in this world? Well, you know, focus, pray, and now you do what you've been given to do. What Christ has worked in you to do, um, which you know, if you're if you're all wrapped in the debauchery, it's very little time for you to be able to focus on the needs of your neighbor and loving them, is it? Right. You're full of all the, the, the raging orgy parties or whatever, like all, like, all that stuff. Yeah, that takes away some attention and, and care that you can give to those around you that is necessary. But with, with that disposition towards suffering, that mind of Christ, um, that gives you the chance to show, to show all of these things. Um, love covers over a multitude of sins. There, there would be wrong ways that we could understand that, that verse, like as if love, co- someone might say that love covers a multitude of sins, as though um, it's, as long as I love, I can kind of do whatever I want, like I can make up for sin by, by like, well, but I'm, but I'm showing, I'm, I'm trying, being loving, uh, or that it would ignore things that are actual sin. Um, that, that the, the verse comes from Proverbs. Proverbs 10, is it? Or right, on Proverbs 10, verse 12. Um, 10, verse 12. That says... It has a contrast in it. Uh, the mouth of the righteous... No, all right, 10, 12. Hate stirs up strife. Hatred stirs up strife. But lover, love covers all offenses. Uh, so the opposite is, 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 is hatred that stirs up controversy and strife, but love covers over offenses. So the, the hatred wants to expose everyone's wickedness and show them and bring them up to everyone and tell everyone about how rotten this other person is. Whereas love is going to look past things. Okay, what this doesn't, this doesn't speak against um, loving rebuke that is owed to someone. It is not always loving to ignore the, the wrong that they're doing, but we don't nitpick and try to, and, and purposely try to bring out and display for everyone to see the worst in them. See, that wouldn't be loving, and it also wouldn't be loving to allow someone to live in sin without correcting them. So it's not talking about don't ever correct anyone, but love covers over a multitude of sins. Love doesn't do that to hurt them. You don't bring up their their their, their wickedness or you know, try to magnify them in order to knock them down, in order to, right? Which, I mean, one, one simple way to do that is if you're going to deal with someone's sin, you deal with that sin to them, 
right? It's when you go and you tell other people about their sins. Before other people, that's where you would want to take their words and actions in the kindest possible way. In front of, in in their absence, you you cover over their sins. But to them, if you when you're dealing with someone, then you then you can talk about that's the that's the way to talk of, talk to about that to someone. Um, love covers over a multitude of sins. Um, So, in what way does love cover over sins? It doesn't. It doesn't feel like I need to bring up everything and, and every wrong thing, especially to others. I mean, or even to them sometimes. Like I don't need to. Um, and this could a multitude of sins, though. Too, this could be lots of sins. So we're not just talking about well, we we love some if they're by and large pretty nice, um, but our love for them. Um, even even should their sins be multiple multitudes, and our sins are multitude, <laughs> right? Um, he does. We probably will. Yeah, we'll have to pick this up a little bit. Uh, talk, talking about this, the, the degree to which we serve, and then also just how how we go about either speaking and um, and serving one another. Shall we close with? What hymn do I have out there? On my heart of preacher.